Welcome to our brand new episode of Thirsty. Uh, we've taken the summer off, and we also don't have Jeremy Lightning with us right now. We're hoping to bring back Jeremy uh, for future podcasts. We have something special going on with him. But I'm pleased to welcome my new associate at Water of Life, Nathan Klusmeyer. Hello, everyone. So the thing is, is Jeremy and Nathan were classmates together, right? Yeah, I we were classmates my uh, first attempt at the seminary. <laughs> so the beautiful thing is for our listeners is that it's really going to be the same because both Jeremy and Nathan are super smart, and I'm just going to be the same guy that just throws out some humor, and they're going to bring all the theology. Well, I mean, you keep saying that about me. I'm not sure if that's true or not. We'll have to see. Uh, uh, but Nathan, why don't you tell us about... A little bit about yourself and you know, your journey to being our pastor here. Uh, so I started off on the path to being a pastor and went to the seminary for a year and a half and decided it wasn't for me. I had fully intended on going back to Martin Luther College to be a high school teacher uh, in history, which is one of my passions. And my father, who was the camp director at Camp Philip, had mentioned that he needed someone to do food service for him. And so I said, okay, I'll come help you out, Dad, but it's only going to be for three years, which then somehow morphed into 15. Uh, so I worked at Camp Philip for 15 years uh, doing food service, facilities maintenance. Uh, during that time, I got an associate's degree in culinary arts, uh, oversaw a million-dollar building project, um, but really still had a heart for the gospel ministry, uh, and so decided that it was time for me to go back to the seminary, and so went back, and they graciously allowed me to come back in as a second-year student, um, and so I did one year at the seminary, and then I did my vicarship at Good Shepherds in West Allis, which is now Living Hope, and then finished at the seminary and was assigned here to Water of Life in July of this year. And then why don't you tell us about your wife and your three children? Uh, so my wife, Anshree, and I, we've been married for 18 years. We dated for a total of six days in high school when she dumped me. And as I like to say, it took her four years to come to her senses and take me back. She doesn't see it that way. Um, she says she was getting near graduation and I was still single, single, single. Uh, so she said she settled and married me. Uh, we have three children. Our oldest, Kaliska, is a senior starting at Shoreland this year. Uh, we have a son, TJ, who is a sophomore. And then our youngest, Grant, uh, is a seventh grader at Wisconsin Lutheran School, uh, where my wife also teaches sixth grade. So the wonderful thing is with Nathan is you, you kind of learn some of the things that he's talented at, you know, as well as having a degree in culinary arts. He knows how to build things. Very good with a chainsaw here. Uh, and then, oh, you have you were an EMT for a while too, right? Yeah, I was an EMT for a while. Yeah. I didn't actually ever go on the ambulance. I had the certification uh, for the camp where I worked. So I know that you had told this to my wife, Shelly, and you had said, you, I think you were kind of lamenting, oh, I'm not a very creative person. And Shelly said, that's okay. Michael's got you covered. So that's about it. That's what I bring to this ministry is I can be creative, and then you've got all the other talents. So that's a good thing. 
And for those of us who don't have the creative skill set, we are very thankful that there are people like you. You can come up with all the ideas you want, and I will implement them. Well, that's fantastic. We were just lamenting yesterday to each other about how busy we are. God is blessing us with tremendous growth at our congregation right now. That I had told Nathan that for 16 guys that we called over two and a half years, I told every one of them, if you take this call, God will bless us. We're ready to grow. We just need someone here. And as soon as Nathan shows up, God's blessing us with that growth in in baptisms and adult confirmations, professions of faith, transfers, and so forth. Uh, what we're going to do with this study is a little bit different than what Jeremy and I were doing. We're, it was more like a Bible study where I asked the questions and then we went back and forth answering them. Is We're just going to be more free with this. And like I said, we're going to bring Jeremy back. Uh, our goal is... Uh, we want to be texting our high schoolers and our 7th and 8th graders and uh, our college students as far as questions that they have uh, on anything. And then they're going to text them to me because being the outreach pastor, Nathan's the inreach pastor, being the outreach pastor, I also have the calling of serving our youth and our young adults. And so to draw them in, we want to be contacting them and then with their questions, then Nathan and myself and hopefully Jeremy will be here once a month to just answer those questions so I can text those to our young adults and teens. Uh, I'm hoping everyone else is going to get benefit from it as well. But So uh, for three out of the four Sundays each month, we'll be looking at the scripture readings, the gospel and epistle lessons, just talking through them. So the gospel lesson for this Sunday is Matthew 16, starting with verse 13. When Jesus came into the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, Who do people say the Son of Man is? They said, Some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. He said to them, But you, who do you say that I am? Simon Peter answered, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Jesus replied, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not overpower it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Then he commanded the disciples not to tell anyone that he was the Christ. So last week in the gospel lesson, we heard that Jesus and his disciples had, law, had left from Jerusalem in the south because of opposition from the religious leaders. Then they were up in Capernaum in Galilee to the north by the Sea of Galilee. But then they left there because of opposition of the religious leaders and went to the to the east toward the Mediterranean Sea with Tyre and Sidon. And there they encountered the woman with the daughter who was demon-possessed. Now they've come back. Uh, they had gone west. Now they're coming back east. So you want to tell us more about Caesarea Philippi? Uh, so Caesarea Philippi was in the north uh, by the Sea of Galilee, kind of in what is today the Golan Heights, uh, part of that high country over there, number of caves uh, and mountainous areas. Um, from what we can tell, it seems like Jesus was near Mount Hermon uh, because that's where 
Caesarea Philippi was kind of located. Um, it was a very Roman city. Uh, Philip, the Tetrarch, who was the, I believe, brother of Herod the Great, um, had built... There had been an existing city there, but he had kind of beautified it, Romanized it, and named it after both Caesar and himself. So not at all vanity involved. Um, Well, which we were just talking about yesterday, too. We were talking about having uh, St. Michael and All Angels Festival, which is September 29th, and Nathan said, well, that's because you just want it named after you. I'm that was a fair assessment. It is. I, I mean, he was very close to God. Well, he still is because he's the archangel. And Michael means one who is like God. So that is a good name for a festival. And I honestly, I did push that name for the church when we were looking for a new church name for the new merch church. But it only got one vote. I wonder who the one vote yeah, was. That was my wife. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so the other thing that's interesting about Caesarea Philippi is that it was also dedicated to the pan to the god Pan, um, and there was a grotto to him there, um, and then there was a cave also there that Pastor Zarlin could perhaps speak to more than I because he's been there. Yeah, and so Pan is the half man, half goat god, correct? Correct. Little goat feet and human body, beard, horns, and then playing the flute, the Pan flute. Yeah, so I was blessed over a decade ago to be in Israel, and I I imagine this all the time when I get to this text, because there our guide had taken us up onto a not a mountain, but a big hill which is it was all rock, and then down below that rock was this cave that Nathan had suggested uh, and mentioned, and it's huge, uh, probably. I don't know, 40, 60 yards across, something like that. And the mouth of the Jordan River is coming from there. It's one of the heads of the Jordan River, and then it flows south. But what the pagans there believed was that was the gate, the mouth to hell, the gate to Hades. And so when Jesus talks about the gates of Hades, I imagine that he's standing on that mountain, on that solid rock, and he points to the rock and says, on this rock I will build my church, and pointing down to the rock that he and the disciples are standing on, and then over to, uh, at least where we were standing, to the right down below would be that cave entrance to the gates of Hades. Uh, Let's get into the text then. Uh, Jesus is asking uh, the the disciples, "Who do people say the Son of Man is? What's why is that title, the Son of Man, so important?" It definitely seems to be the title that Jesus preferred to use talking about himself. Um, and what's also interesting is it it clearly points back to the prophecy in the book of Daniel that would talk about the coming Messiah, um, and Jesus seems to like that title for himself. Um, 
And it also emphasizes in this text, you see a very nice juxtaposition between Jesus referring to himself as the Son of Man and then Peter confessing, you are the Son of God. And so this is a text that really talks about the two aspects of Jesus's nature, that he is both true man and true God. Um, And we don't see a lot of places in Scripture where it's clearly shown in one section like this is. Yeah, and what's interesting, too, with the Son of Man, like you said, that's really a reference back to Daniel, very much like when Jesus says any of the I am statements. These are the things, I think, that really get the religious leaders ticked at him, because when he uses that term, Son of Man, and I am, we might not pick up on it. But they do. They know that he has an, he is giving direct allusions to the Old Testament, that he is the fulfillment of Daniel's prophecy, and that he was the one in the burning bush with Moses when Moses asked the, asked the angel of the Lord in that bush, who should I say uh, sent me? And he says, tell them, I am sent you, and I am is Jesus. I am the good shepherd. I am the resurrection, I am the way, the truth, and the life, I am the door. All of those are statements of, just like the Son of Man, uh, pointing back to Jesus as true God and true man. What's interesting, too, is that Jesus had been, this is fairly late in his ministry at well, and so he seems to be asking the disciples, like, what, what have you heard from the people? Who do people say that I am? And the answers they give, John the Baptist, Elijah, Jeremiah, seems to be indicating that people were not hearing in Jesus's ministry what they were expecting. They were expecting the Messiah to come and be a purely political savior uh, who would come, would overthrow the Romans, would be the son of David, would reestablish the kingship, and would reestablish Israel as a prominent political power in the world. And that was not the message that Jesus had been preaching. And so the people seem to be saying with the answers here that Jesus is the forerunner of the Messiah. He's not the Messiah yet. He's the one who comes before. And then Jesus asks them that all-important question, who do you say that I am? And there, when I say that all-important question, because that's the question that should be asked of every one of us. And in our current culture, and that's one of the things, Nathan, you'll pick up on that Jeremy and I talked a lot about the culture in these podcasts, that in our current culture, we have a culture where people are still worshiping other gods, but the gods are oftentimes themselves. It's their feelings. It's their emotions, their sexuality. It's don't tell me what to do or it's my Jesus would be for this or my Jesus would be for that. And all they're doing is they're, well, we had a professor that would say like a wax nose and, you know, just twist it. Or like I like going over uh, an excuse to go talk to the preschool teacher and her aide just so I can go play with Play-Doh with the preschoolers. Because if I just go and play with Play-Doh, it's, it may look kind of weird, but if I'm doing it because I'm talking to the kids and the teacher, then it's okay. But playing with Play-Doh, you can make whatever you want. Most of the kids are going to make snakes and things like that. But what our culture does is they're just making their own gods, and it's not anything like the true God. Well, I think something else that's fascinating in our culture is I think a lot of people like to think that we are living in a post-religious world. But 
when you look at cultural trends, you see that we almost seem to be reverting to a form of paganism. Uh, You see a heavy emphasis on worshiping the earth, that we need to talk about. The earth is almost personified as a deity that needs to be worshiped and protected. Uh, People are still occult practices. You think of you know, some of the stuff that was popular in the 70s hasn't gone away. That, uh, that idea of communing with the forces of nature through crystals, uh, through meditation, that is still all very prevalent. And even though I think the impression is that we're in a completely secular society, people still have that innate urge to find something outside of themselves. And so they're going to go to look for it wherever they can. And only the Christian church has the truth, has the answer to that question, who is Jesus Christ? I was listening to C.S. Lewis's Mere Christianity this week, and in there he asked the famous trilemma. So you got a dilemma, two things, but he posed the trilemma, three things. And I think most of us have heard it before. It's, uh, is Jesus a liar, a lunatic, or the Lord? You know, because people will say that he is just a great teacher. But as Lewis says, but he may have had great things that he taught, but he also taught that he was the son of man. Uh, He didn't refer to himself ever in the Gospels as the son of God, which is pretty interesting. Uh, Others said that of him because he didn't have to. He was emphasizing, like you said, his humanity along with the divinity of that title. So, uh, but he's claiming to be God. And if anyone would claim to be, say, Napoleon or George Washington, they're crazy and they should be locked up. And yet Jesus is saying more than that. He's saying he's God. So he's either a a lunatic or he's lying. He knows he's not the son of God, but he's just fooling everyone. Or Lewis says he really is who he claims to be and that he is the Lord. He, he says it like this. is uh, He says he's either liar, lunatic, or Lord. And those first two, being just being a great teacher, that's not open to us. You know, he, he's one or the other. Well, this has been an accusation that's been leveled against Christianity since the very beginning. I was just reading through uh, the Acts account the other day, and when the disciples are on trial before the Sanhedrin, it's Gamaliel, one of the most prominent of the Pharisee and was well-respected for his wisdom, had said, you know, if this is just a teaching of men, it's going to disappear. But if it's a teaching of God, if we do everything we can to stop it, it won't stop. It will keep going. And so we'll just wait and see. And we've seen how the church has endured through the ages. And that's like people, too. If the disciples were liars, if they were making this up, if they didn't actually believe that Jesus was God, people don't allow themselves to be killed for a lie. People will be killed to stand up for the truth, but they won't die for a lie. Yeah. And on that, for our listeners, go list, go watch the YouTube video by Babylon B. Uh, with the disciples. It's probably one of their most popular ones. And it's where the disciples, uh, they're gathered around a fire at night and they're celebrating that they're going to be beheaded and crucified upside down, skinned alive, run through with a spear. And they're all jumping around excited by this. And one of the disciples is asking, 
we're not going to get rich by this. We're not going to get famous by this. No, we're going to get killed. And then they're, they're jumping around, high-fiving and so forth. And it is a great, a humorous way of proving, yeah, the disciples were not liars because you don't lie to that extent to have nothing and then be persecuted and even every one of them except John put to death in, in horrific ways for a lie. And you just think about how completely countercultural that is to our society. Our society is focused on alleviating suffering, alleviating pain. Um, you think of all the different kinds of pain medication that are out there to get away from pain, to get away from suffering. And how Christianity says, no, embrace suffering. This is one of the marks of the church. And that's just a message that's completely antithetical to what most of our society stands for. And it's something that we can offer as comfort to people, to give them a meaning to their lives, to give them a meaning for why they're enduring suffering instead of just having this suffering in their lives and having no hope because there's no meaning for it. There's nothing there for them. Just switching a little bit, uh, again, thinking of mere Christianity, where Lewis talks about Jesus being the Son of Man and that we are sons and daughters of God as well. But he says, but it's different because Jesus was begotten of the Father, meaning uh, he explains that they are of the same substance. But notice in Scripture that we are not begotten of the Father. We are created or made, Scripture says. And he uses the example of like when we have children, they are begotten of us. They are of the same substance of us. But when we make, he uses the example of a statue. It may look human, but it's different. It's not begotten. Uh, maybe he didn't use this example, but even if it was a robot, if it was a Terminator or something that came to life, it's not really alive. Okay, It's created, it's made, but it's still different. Except that when the Son of Man, through faith given to us by the Holy Spirit, like Jesus says to Peter, when Peter gets it right, he says, that's not revealed, that, that wasn't revealed to you by man, it was given to you by my Father, we would add, through the Spirit. When the Spirit gives us faith in the Son of Man as our Savior, now we become sons and daughters of God, uh, even though we are created and made, now we are begotten in a way. And that's what's fascinating about the whole message of the gospel, because it is not something that we could come to by our own thinking. You look at every other world religion, and they all go back to the idea that at some point there is a God who is angry, and that we need to do something to make that God happy. And it's entirely focused on us and what we need to do. Whereas the gospel says, no, it's all what Christ has done for you, and God now gives to us freely as a gift. And that just goes completely contrary to our very natures, because we all know the expression that there's no such thing as a free lunch. And so when we hear the message of the gospel, we immediately balk and go, okay, what's the catch? And it's just, no, there is no catch. God has done it. Christ has saved us from our sins. And that's just, it's only revealed through the words of Scripture. That's not something we can come up with on our own. And that's what 
Jesus is saying to Peter is like, this was not revealed to you by your own thinking or reason. You would not have come to this conclusion by yourself. It's only revealed to you by God. And that's the same with Jesus himself. Like, we would never think to ourselves that God would make himself human to come and live among us, that God, the creator of the universe, would be willing to come and suffer on this world to die for his creatures, for his creation. And yet that's exactly what Scripture says Christ did. So, Peter, uh, so Nathan, if you can explain what Jesus is saying to Peter here when he says, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church. What's, you know, explain like the Greek there of Petra and Petrus. So Jesus is using a masculine form with Peter because Peter was masculine. And so the word then on this rock is Petra, which is a feminine form. And so I am just going to add right here, I am and by no means a Greek scholar in any sense of the word. Uh, but that feminine form would not be what we would expect if Jesus was talking to Peter directly. It definitely seems to be pointing to something else. Um, the Catholic Church in particular has used this verse as a sedes doctrinae for their belief that Peter, as the first pope, that Jesus was now establishing the papacy, that Peter was this rock. And yet, from the rest of Scripture, we know that's can't, that can't be what Jesus is saying here. Because think about if, if Peter is the rock the church is built on, that's not a firm foundation. Immediately following this section in both, I think it's in all three of the synoptics, um, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, is the account of Jesus predicts his death. And then Jesus, and Peter says, Jesus, don't talk about that. And then Jesus says, get behind me, Satan. And so you then have the rock that the church is supposed to be built on, if it's Peter, in the next section of Scripture being called Satan. We know that later on Peter would betray, not betray, would disown Jesus. And then we have examples in Acts of several times when Peter showed weakness of faith, uh, particularly in the Cornelius incident where he did not want to uh, go against Jewish tradition and embrace his Christian freedom. And then later on, when Paul had to rebuke Peter uh, for giving into some of the demands of the Jewish Christians who were trying to hinder the consciences of the Gentile Christians who were coming in. And so Peter, as a man, is a rather flimsy foundation for the edifice of the church to be built on. But his confession that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, the only person in all of creation who can make full atonement for the sins of the world, that is a firm foundation. That is the foundation that the church is built on. And there's plenty of other references in Scripture that talk about Christ as the cornerstone, as the foundation. I'm just, I'm just uh, floored by the word edifice because we've <laughs> had a lot of guests on our podcast and none of you used the word edifice yet. Uh, I'm, so with this, I want to talk about the next part when he says, uh, and on this rock I will build my church and the gates of hell will not overpower it or the gates of Hades. And again, going back to that imagery of Jesus standing there with his disciples by that cave, which was supposed to be the entrance, the gates to Hades, so the gates of hell. 
so I wrote wrote this a while ago. This is in a book uh, that I had always thought of this text as being defensive. And as I was studying this and writing this for the book, uh, knowing I think I'm wrong, they're not defensive words. These are offensive. Uh, gates were defensive structures in the ancient world. By saying that the gates of Hades would not overcome his church, Jesus suggested that those very gates were going to be attacked. The image here is not of God's city being attacked and repelling the attackers, but the city of the devil being attacked by the warriors of God. The city is this world, claimed by the prince of this world, the devil after the fall. The devil flaunted his claim on this world before the Lord with Job and in the wilderness. The prince of this world even had the audacity to try to defeat the king of creation with desert temptations, but Jesus would not be overcome. Rather, the king, Jesus, attacks the fortress of the devil. He comes into the very domain of death and the devil. He enters the battle by taking on human flesh and blood. The devil snickers and the demons roar as Jesus is nailed to the cross. But it is with blood and wood that Jesus defeats the devil. He removes the power of sin by taking sin's sting upon himself. He releases the devil's foothold on this earth by being struck by the serpent's fangs in his divinely human feet. He frees souls from death by his own glorious resurrection from the grave. And then, because Jesus is the king and he's powerful, now he gives that same power to the church. And he gives us that power to go on the offense with these, with these weapons. The ones that he mentions here are, I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. And there, if you've, if you've been in a church, or maybe your church has a stained glass window of a key or two keys, it's an image of Jesus' words here. The, the binding key and the loosing key. He says, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. What he's talking there about that the weapons we have is going and forgiving sins, and, and then also withholding forgiveness. So we give forgiveness to those who are repentant. We loose their sins. We have the power, whether it's a dad to his kids, whether it's a brother to his sister, whether it's a pastor to his people, that we have the power to announce forgiveness because Jesus has announced that forgiveness to us. But when children or spouses or people in the church are unrepentant, then we also have the power and authority to withhold forgiveness, to bind their sins to them. This section of scripture, just going back a little bit with the gates of hell will not overcome it, always reminds me of just the beauty of the doctrine of the descent into hell. Um, I think we, we say it often in the creeds, um, but I think we, we need to do a better job of, of teaching our people exactly what happened there. Um, I love envisioning the descent into hell as the the Roman triumph. Um, and so in the Roman Republic, and then later on under the Caesars, when a victorious general would come back into Rome, they would have a massive parade where the general would march through the streets of Rome in a chariot drawn by horses with the soldiers going in front of them. And they would just, it was showing the might and the power of the city of Rome. And then usually at the end of the procession, whoever the vanquished general would be, 
would usually be have their they would lay down in front of the conquering general general he would put his foot on their neck and then that general would often be executed there on the spot and i think that's the image we want to have in mind in christ's descent into hell that he was going there to proclaim his victory that the gates and the power of hell had been shattered and destroyed and christ is marching through hell proclaiming that victory and I think that's one of the things we, we keep in mind because what we're, we're living in the fallen world still. We haven't seen that victory fully realized. And it can look at times like the forces of evil are winning, that they are waging war against the church. But we remember, the victory's already won. Christ has destroyed the power of Satan and of hell. They have no hold over us. And even though Satan is raging, he's, he's defeated. He's fighting a losing battle and there's nothing he can do to win. So the imagery that I always think of with Jesus' descent into hell is that the devil and his demons, they're all parting behind closed doors because they killed the Son of God. And they've been parting for three days. And then uh, early on Sunday morning, there's a little knock on the door. One of the demons opens up the keyhole, and then he lets out an expletive, and then the door just blasts open and they all go scurrying and Jesus enters gloriously and shining majestic and then preaches to all those in hell both the demons and those who have been cast into hell for eternity that he is victorious and because of that now we are victorious that was the message I gave to Janice using this text in our hospital devotion today and I said you know Janice I know that uh, you know, you're praying to get out of the hospital and, and get your, your issue that has put her there taken care of. But I said, but that's a minor thing. And I realized that may have been a bad thing to say because she may not think it's minor. But I said, it's, it's a relatively minor thing because uh, this is what's the, the major thing is eternity. This minor thing is for a couple of days and maybe for a couple of years. But the big thing is what Jesus does for you victoriously for your eternity. Uh, but on a side note, I, I did ask my daughter Miriam, who's home this weekend, I asked her, how old do I look? She said, I don't, why are you asking that? And I said, well, because I was sitting there with Janice, who's, uh, I'm going to guess, several decades older than me, because you don't really want to give a lady's age. So several decades older than me. And I was sitting there, and I was just in a, in a polo shirt because I had biked there. And the nurse came in, and she started working on Janice. And Janice said, can you come back in half an hour? I'm meeting here with my pastor. And the nurse said, oh, I'm so sorry. I thought this was your husband. <laughs> I didn't say anything to Janice, but I'm going, oh, my goodness. That would, I'd have to be like, 35 years older than I am. But but then I told that to Miriam, and she said, well, there are gold diggers out there. So. If it makes you feel any better, when I was uh, when I was 18, um, well, I shaved my head that summer um, out of choice, not out of necessity like I do now. Um, I shaved my head that summer and went to one of those booths at the state fair where they guess your age, and uh, the gentleman thought I was 40, and did not believe me until I showed my ID that I was only 18. So, yeah, I've, I've always looked significantly older than I am. Yeah. All right. Anything else on this 
this text that you want to talk about. I was going to ask you, since you're preaching, are you preaching on this text? I am preaching on this text. So what text. is your sermon theme? Uh, the Righteous Rock of Refuge. All right, good alliteration. That's right. I, I love it. All right, then let's uh, get into the epistle lesson if you want to read that. Yeah, the epistle lesson from this week is from Romans chapter 10. Uh, Indeed, Moses writes this about the righteousness that comes by the law. The one who does these things will live by them. But the righteousness that comes by faith speaks like this. Do not say in your heart, who will ascend into heaven, that is to bring Christ down, or who will descend into the abyss, that is to bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? The word is near you, in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith that we are proclaiming. Certainly, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For it is with the heart a person believes, resulting in righteousness, and it is with the mouth that a person confesses, resulting in salvation. For scripture says, Everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. So there is no distinction between Jew and Greek, Because the same Lord is Lord of all, who gives generously to all who can call on him. Yes, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. So that righteousness that Paul's writing about is, he says, Moses writes this about the righteousness that comes by the law. Uh, And righteousness, what is righteousness? I think we have confused in our current culture, sadly, even within our churches, what righteousness is, that we have confused it in saying, well, civic righteousness, that if we do this because it appears good, because this is what a government tells us to do, so forth, then then we are righteous. And at the same time, I feel we've forgotten about our Christian righteousness, that it may be that we go against what the government says, uh, I was listening today. It was a horrific story that in Maui we had those they had those awful fires. Hundreds of people died. I didn't know this because the mainstream media does not talk about this. But you have to listen to alternate media like you and I do. And I don't know if did you hear about this that they were trying to flee the city where this fire was raging. It was coming from one direction. So people were in their vehicles to flee, but they weren't allowed to by a police officer. Have you heard about that? Yeah, I did hear about that, that the main road, the main evacuation route had been blocked and they weren't able to get out. Yeah. Now, they would say in defense, well, they were up down power lines, but I think people would have rather chanced the power lines than the raging fire that was coming behind them. So there were people that died boiled in their vehicles because of their civic righteousness because they were listening to a police officer there were those who opposed the civic righteousness and got out of their vehicles and went or drove their vehicles in a different direction or just ignored him Uh, others they had to make a choice and then dove into the ocean with their little children so they weren't boiled alive i just use that as an extreme example of when we appear to do what is good and right in the eyes of the world, but that's not what God looks at. He looks at what's in our heart, and that's what what's what uh, Paul's getting at here. 
And this is certainly nothing new for the Christian to struggle with. You think back to the time of the Church Fathers, where civic righteousness was worshiping at the cult of the Caesar. And in order to be a good Roman citizen, you had to go to the temple and proclaim your obedience to Caesar and worship him as God. And this was something that Christians simply could not do. And so they had to go against civic righteousness and often paid for that disobedience with their life. But yes, they they valued the righteousness of God over the righteousness that is demanded by the world. Yeah. And then that righteousness, it's interesting that uh, Paul in verse 6 personifies righteousness. And he says, oh, righteousness by faith speaks like this. Do not say in your heart who will ascend into heaven, that is to bring Christ down, or who will descend into the abyss, that is to bring Christ up from the dead. What he's getting at is what you and I were talking about earlier, is just making up a Christ to fit your own your own needs. Well, and you see that a lot today, too, with people love to point to Scripture that says God is love. And they always point to, well, it's not loving to tell someone they're sinning. It's not loving to tell somebody they're in a homosexual relationship. It's not loving to tell two young people who can't afford two rents that they shouldn't be living together outside of marriage. And we would say, no, it is loving because they're they're living contrary to God's revealed will. And so in love, we need to gently rebuke people, to point them to the law, to say you are sinning, because all of those sins lead only to eternal death. And it is one of the roles of the church. It's using that binding key from the gospel lesson to show people their sin, to use the law, to point them uh, to Christ. And then he goes on, you know, what does it say? The word is near you and in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith that we are proclaiming. Uh, we would, I think we would put it this way, but I guess we shouldn't really argue with the Holy Spirit's order of words, uh, where he said, we would probably put it this way, the word is near you, it's in your heart, and then in your mouth. But I, I, like, I like putting it this way a lot of times, that the word of God is stuffed into our ears, and then stuffed into our mouth with words combined with, uh, wafer and wine in the sacrament so that it then filters down into our so it can come back out of our mouth in our words uh, both spoken and sung maybe maybe not sung so well by you and me but spoken hopefully very well hopefully yeah uh, one of the things you know when you're, you're working on a sermon text you're always trying to find what is the law and with the gospel, I kind of played around with the idea of this idea of confessing, of how do we confess Christ in our lives, and kind of got to the idea of, do we always confess him when we're around friends, or do, do we hide our faith because we don't want to be made fun of? But then also the idea of confessing, are we confessing God? Are we confessing Christ when we commit those, those sins of habit that we do over again? Are we confessing Christ when we choose to break a commandment because it's easier than following it. But I also struggle with, I don't want to make what Paul says here into law, because it's not law. He's not saying that in order to be saved, you have to confess, because that's that's works righteousness there. But instead, it's getting to that idea that that, that faith we have in our heart that's been created by the Holy Spirit, we echo the words of the apostles and acts. We can't help 
speaking about what we've seen and heard. We can't help but letting that light of Christ that is in us shine forth into the world. Yeah, and then with that, that confessing with your mouth that Jesus is Lord. So Nathan and I are ministering to a man in our congregation. I finished taking him through adult instruction classes, and he believes what the Bible teaches. But his Catholicism just has such a hold on him that he said to both of us separately that, uh, what do you say, you feel guilty? Yeah, you feel guilty if he abandoned it. But he's he's also dying of cancer. Uh, the doctors are giving him a year or two. And even though you know we know that he's struggling with this, and we pray that he's going to be able to take communion one day, the Holy Spirit will... Uh, convert him all the way to say, yes, I agree enough that he's going to be taking communion at Water of Life and with his wife. But I I did assure him that I said, no matter what, I am still going to be your pastor. Pastor Klusmeyer and I are still going to come visit you, and I will still do your funeral. Because even though he may not yet have necessarily confessed his faith, that he agrees 100% with everything that we teach as a Lutheran church and church body, uh, he's confessed with his mouth in those Bible classes so that uh, I know that one day, and it looks like very soon, because of what he's confessed with his mouth here, I will see him in heaven confessing with his mouth, singing God's praises around the throne of Christ. And that's just what's so neat about the Christian faith. That idea of that it's so it's so simple. And I, I I've struggled with that personally, that like it it can't it can't be this easy. Luther struggled with that as well. That it, it can't be this easy. That I, I have to do something. I sinned. Now I have to do something to make up for that sin. Because that's exactly what his situation is. That's why he, what he said to both you and I, yes. right? It's too easy. Yep. Yeah. And I mean, we think of, that's how we are with our with our with our personal lives. I say something really stupid to my wife. I go and buy her yellow roses because those are her favorite. I'm trying to make up for that, and that may patch over our personal relationships, but that can't patch over our relationships with God, because, like Isaiah says, even even our best acts are filthy rags in the eyes of God, that we are so steeped in sin by nature that there's absolutely nothing that we can do that will ever earn God's favor. It's only because Christ has taken our sins upon himself and forgiven us that we have been adopted as God's sons that we can now do good works that please God. And they don't please God because we're doing them. They please God because he's seeing them through the blood of Christ. And this is why we put so much emphasis on confirmation uh, for those eighth graders and so forth because they are standing before the throne of God, before their family, their pastor, their witnesses, and God, confessing that they are willing to suffer all, even death, rather than fall away from it. And I tell the, my eighth graders every year, I meet with them like in January and February before confirmation the first Sunday in May, if you're not ready to make that confession, then don't make it. It's okay. It's a big deal. But it was interesting uh, and exciting two weeks. No, it wasn't two weeks. It was already the last Tuesday. These are long weeks. Last Tuesday, I was blessed to be able to take uh, Bob, 
who had gone through adult confirmation classes last year that was able to baptize him and his two little children, uh, who are ages two and five, at our baptismal font, and then he stood there and made his confession of faith. Uh, I, I did... I did admit to Pastor Klusmeyer, though, that I'm not, I don't know if I'm willing to give all of those things up because I really like getting everyone wet in baptism and I really like confirming them and giving them first, their first communion and so forth. So I know I have to share, but it's going to be tough. That's, that's a sacrifice of love on your part there. <laughs> and then he says, everyone who believes in him will never be put to shame. I think that's that's something for us to understand and believe and apply as we see in our culture more recently, and it's going to be happening more and more, that people are going to try and shame us for our Christian faith. And we just have to uh, understand that, uh, like, like I told Janice, with uh, go- going back to that gospel lesson, I said, the devil's going to come and whisper in your in your ear tonight when you're all alone and it's quiet, and he's going to whisper that God doesn't love you. If he loved you, he wouldn't leave you here like this. He wouldn't have taken your husband away several years ago. And just, he's going to keep coming at you. And you just have to say, and I said, sing in Christ alone. That's the hymn of the day for this Sunday. Sing, a mighty fortress is our God. And I picked that one specifically because I told her, in that hymn, Luther says, one little word will fell Satan. That little word is Jesus. I said, just yell Jesus. I, the nurses might come running if they hear her yelling, but yell Jesus at Satan because he and his demonic forces cannot put us to shame because, like we said before, Christ is victorious. Well, it's interesting you talk about that concept of shame uh, because what is one of the things that a lot of people are really scared of in our society? It's that idea of being canceled, of being considered so shameful that other people don't want to associate with you. Um, And it's kind of an interesting cultural shift because I don't think this concept of shame um, was something as prevalent even 20 years ago, but it's people now, people are terrified of losing face. And so that's going to be the real challenge for the church going forward is because the forces of darkness in this world want to make the church shameful. They want to make anyone associated with the church shameful, that you are such a terrible person for being part of Christianity that no one else wants to associate with you. You know, you think back to the 1950s in this country, it was a social boon for you to be a Christian. That opened doors for you. Now, admitting your faith publicly, that's going to get doors slammed in your face. People are starting to associate Christianity with those hateful people who don't show love. Yeah. With that, I was listening to a podcast, and one of the guys had commentators had mentioned how someone had put on TikTok. I don't even know why people go on TikTok. I think that's one of the other tools of the devil. Anyhow, uh, that someone had put— that That's all the social media you young kids, <laughs> Michael, use. Yeah, I don't use TikTok. But— uh, some lady had gotten on there and was lambasting a Christian with her church going door to door, knocking on doors, inviting people to their church and witnessing and so forth. And she said, but, you know, 
LGBTQ and so forth don't do that. And then the podcaster rightly pointed out, they don't have to. It's in our schools. Uh, this is, the, well, again, I read a news story this morning uh, that in Germany, so if it's happening overseas somewhere, it's going to come here, that Germany has in their preschool, they've got nudity rooms for their children where the kids are, are naked and then can touch each other and so forth. It's gross. Uh, and the parents, well, and the article said, well, the parents got upset. Well, I would do way more than get upset. But the point is, the the pagans, and we said before, the pagans are those that are worshiping their, their self, their identity, their sexuality. They don't have to go knocking door-to-door because they couldn't defend it door-to-door. It's That's why it's been infiltrated into our grade schools or high schools, preschools, universities, uh, the military, and so forth. And so, right, like you said, now they're going to shame us when we go knocking door-to-door, door, when we go and invite people to our church and so forth. And yet, uh, it's a good reminder for us as Christians, we can't be put to shame because uh, Christ suffered that shame on the cross, and he returned victorious, and now that victory is ours. And yet, too, those people that are trying to shame us, if you're willing to have the conversation with them, if you get past that initial thing, you'll find out that there's a hunger there, that they're they're often lashing out because there is something lacking in their life, because they don't have that hope and confidence that we have in Christ. They're building their faith on the shakiest and most unstable of foundations. And deep down, they know that. And so they're, they're hungering for that truth. And so if you can be patient and work with them and just love them and be their friend, they're going to see that. They're going to see that, okay, this person isn't just a judgmental bigot that hates my lifestyle. This is someone who actually cares for me. This is someone who's willing to love me and they love me so much, they're willing to come and approach me with this message of the truth. And, and to that point, just wrapping this text up with that last verse, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And there I think of what you were just saying, Nathan, of people trying to put up opposi- opposition. And they're just going to throw things at the wall. And there I remember years ago, when I first got here to the church, uh, I was asked to go visit Red. Red was the stepfather of one of our members, and his own family didn't know if Red was going to heaven. They had no idea if he had faith in Christ as a Savior or not, and he was dying of cancer. So I went over to see Red at his house, and Red said, I just don't like it, Pastor, that I can't come to your church and take communion. And I said, Red. And which this is the wisdom of just a few years in the ministry. By that time, it was probably nine years. Because I think before this, I probably would have wanted to argue about close communion with him. But wisdom with age was there, and the Holy Spirit gave me the words they read. You're not leaving this house. You're dying of cancer. So we're not going to talk about communion. Let's talk about your faith in Christ. And he goes, oh, okay. And <laughs> but he wanted to deflect like what you're saying so many people want to do and what our job as pastors but also as lay people is just to get to the nut uh, you know, pull everything else away get to that that nut that's in the middle which is Jesus Christ so that they confess him as Lord and Savior 
And I think you see that a lot, especially in the, the transsexual movement that's kind of sweeping our society right now. See, is- that's good. See, you're ju- just like uh, if it was Jeremy and me, because we would bring that in every single one. Usually it's me, so appreciate it. Um, because I think it's people are hungering to find meaning in their life and they're feeling empty inside and they don't know who they are. And so they're trying to find a different persona and adopt that and say, okay, well now if I change myself and become this different person, then my life will have fe- find meaning. Um, but what we're see- what's happening more and more is people are doing that and they're still not finding meaning because they're not addressing the problem, that hunger they have to know their creator. Um, that's built into all of us to want to look and to seek and to find God, but it's only through Scripture that we can find Him. Yeah, and and to use that that analogy, that story you're talking about is, if you, I guess you could say we as Christians we do have that different persona, is that we were born sinners. What they're doing is they're just trying to shift and cut and mutilate and change their persona, uh, their own body. And yet Christ changes us, not by cutting us, but by baptizing us and feeding us so that we are different. And so uh, it's, it's not, they're making themselves look different. We appear different. You know, theirs is physical. Ours is spiritual. All right. Anything else on this? No, I don't think so. I think right. that. So what did you think of your first podcast? It was good. All right. That's good. I could get used to doing this every week. All right. So, yeah, so now we're we're back to a regular schedule. Um, Jeremy is going to be, like I said, hopefully he's going to be coming back. He's working on a conference paper, a, a big one on family ministry that our Shoreline Conference had uh, given him. I have to give him a hard time to say, uh, remind him that when I was given a conference paper, it turned into a book. So maybe he can do that too. We'll wrap it up here. Uh, this is Michael Zarling with Nathan Klusmeyer. We're the pastors at Water of Life. Stay thirsty, my friends, then drink deeply from the Water of Life.